technology shapes and influences every aspect of our lives today, and we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how it will radically change the way we live and work in the future. Coming up... We are seeing this demographic speak with one voice, whereas in the baby boomer era, you know, our neighbourhoods were defined by our communities that we lived within. We didn't have the luxury of uh, global communications. Millennials, on the other hand, their communities are defined by the connections they have with people all over the world. And that's why we're seeing change happen at speed, scale and impact like never before. You're listening to The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth, a Nokia original series. As we say goodbye to a decade of massive social, political, and environmental change, the decade to come promises more of the same. And it's because of a demographic shift that's taking place worldwide. Millennials spent the last 10 years shunning the conventions built by the boomers and beautifully executed by Generation X. And over the next 10 years, will increasingly become the demographic in charge. But despite social media memes deriding their elders, boomers and millennials have a lot in common or at least they did in their youth. So how will millennials leverage technologies today to change their tomorrow? For insight, we turn to Rocky Scopoletti, a futurist and the author of a book about millennials titled Youth Quake. We began by talking about that term, youth quake, a portmanteau that was coined to describe the boomer generation. It does indeed. Uh, this is history repeating itself, in fact, Michael, because Youthquake was a term first uh, coined by the editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine back in 1965, and the term uh, describes a significant social, economic, political and cultural change associated with a young demographic. And so when we think of the 1960s, and uh, the impact of um, the youth uh, on social, cultural, political landscape worldwide, then it's unsurprising that five generation, uh, sorry, that uh, the uh, five decades later, we see the millennials now rising up who are the children of baby boomers, uh, giving rise to social change, political change worldwide. It's interesting, too, because we talk now about Industry 4.0. In Industry 3.0, it was essentially that computer revolution that took place in the 80s, built by the baby boomers. Uh, with that in mind, Klaus Schwab, who is the founder of the World Economic Forum, described us as being at the fourth industrial revolution. I, I think he largely put a, a pin in it and said, all right, we're in it now, and that it's fundamentally changing the way we live, work, and relate to one another. So from your perspective, setting aside the technological differences between Industry 3.0 and 4.0, what do you see as different this time? Uh, and that's why I wrote the book Youthquake, which looked at demographic change and then the context upon which this demographic will lead the world, which will be the fourth industrial revolution. If we look at these two things collectively, uh, then we can actually address that question more comprehensively because millennials 
will, over the course of, they're not only today uh, the largest demographic group on the planet, but through the course of time, they will become the consumers, the policymakers, the employees, the workforces. They're, they will permeate society across all of those areas. And so it is this demographic upon which we need to really address that question. And this is the first demographic that has grown up completely digital. Uh, and so each industrial revolution builds upon the last. And so all of a sudden we now have a demographic that has grown up digitally and uh, has an appetite for significant political, cultural uh, and economic change around the world and will use technology uh, to augment uh, this change of the world that they're seeking. Outside of the augmenting the world around them using technology, that description you've given sounds an awful lot like those dirty hippies of the 1960s at Boomer Generation in the first place. Well, absolutely. And I think if we just sort of step back and just sort of say, well, okay, if we accept that they are already today are the largest demographic group on the planet, then through the course of time, how might they exercise that influence? And so in the book, what I've done is sort of broken it down to sort of say, this is how uh, they will exercise their influence. So if we just look at their proportionate representation in democracies, you can see that they're starting to now exercise their collective voting. We see this uh, occurring um, in Brexit. We saw this in the midterm elections in the United States. Uh, and we're seeing this unfold, sadly, in Hong Kong. Uh, so, you know, these are how this demographic is exercising their, their democratic influences through their votes. Uh, the second area is then if we look at, well, what's their economic influence? Millennials today have now become the primary producer of income around the world. So as their proportionate representation of the workplaces increase, so will their proportionate uh, production of income. And so they are now starting to exercise their uh, economic influence through the selection of brands that they will and won't support, whether, whether that aligns or not to their, uh, to their philosophical, environmental, uh, or, or, or cultural areas. Now, through the course of time, the world has appreciated all of the wealth which will flow down intergenerationally through the course of time. You know, yes, we debate about how much or whatever, but the reality is, is that it will flow down. And so not only, you know, have they become the primary producer of income, but they're becoming the custodians of the world's capital. Hmm. And the question is, how are they going to allocate and deploy that capital? And we're starting to now see them make preferences on where they'll allocate their investments to organisations that might have a more environmental influence um, or orientation in asset classes compared to others. So we're seeing the economic influence now sort of uh, rise as well. In the workplace, this is probably where the greatest discord arises. Now, what I mean by that is 
They already today represent one in three in the workplace. By 2020, it'll be one in two. Uh, by 2025, it'll be two in three. Yet at a leadership level, they are the most underrepresented demographic in the workplace that we have. And we now have five generations in the workplace. But at a leadership level, uh, we are now seeing that they are significantly underrepresented. And as a result, we're now seeing a demographic, one in two upon which, prefers to actually work for themselves rather than actually work for a organisation. And so these are just some examples of how they will exercise their influence democratically, economically, uh, and in the workplace. It, it's fascinating that not unlike the hippie boomers, their parents were, they, they were interested in social change too, but unlike their parents, this time around, this is a generation that has critical mass. The boomers were overwhelmed by the silent generation and the greatest generation before it for, what, the first 20 years of their influential lives. But that's not the case for the millennial. That's right. And, and I think, again, we're now seeing this playing out in a variety of, you know, democratic and non-democratic uh, parts of the world. Let's bring this back to Industry 4.0 then, and, and what is different this time? If the boomer generation is the generation that's still making the decisions at the boardroom level about what Industry 4.0 looks like, but it's the millennials who will be using Industry 4.0 more than any other generation, what kind of challenges does that create when the people at the top making all the calls don't really have an understanding of those who are going to use it? That's a fascinating question, Michael, because the, what, what we can actually look at here is, well, what does the top actually really mean? Because uh, perhaps we can now start understanding uh, the disruptive impact of a demographic who is speaking globally through technologies uh, that they gave rise to. Who gave rise to social media? It was the millennials. Who has you know, develop this unquenchable thirst for mobile technologies. It's millennials. Uh, and so the point here is that uh, on issues such as climate change, we are seeing this demographic speak with one voice. Whereas in the baby boomer era, you know, our neighbourhoods were defined by our communities that we lived within. We didn't have the luxury of uh, global communications. Millennials, on the other hand, their communities are defined by the connections they have with people all over the world. And that's why we're seeing change happen at speed, scale and impact like never before. Now, when we look at this sort of, you know, this discord between those at the top uh, and, and, and what we mean by the top is the major corporations, uh, but we're now seeing a world being characterised by uh, disruptive startups that are appearing and having much greater impact in such a quick period of time like never before. Uh, and so if we look at the sort of whole Silicon Valley uh, and the startup community, uh, this is the demographic that is, you know, stepping up with their entrepreneurship uh, having a much greater and higher purpose than the just the production of, uh, of profit and are seeking purpose in the work that they do 
rather than necessarily just following a uh, an organizational vision. I'll give you some examples of this. If we just look at what um, you know the purpose is for organizations uh, like um, uh, like Google, for example. Um, you know, their purpose is to organise the world's information. Uh, the um, If we look at um, uh, Ant Financial, it's to bring uh, financial inclusion to the two billion people unbanked around the world. This is what purpose really means. Uh, and so in the absence of organisations that have values uh, that have a vision that resonates with this demographic, they're just choosing to do their own thing. One of the, the key elements that we've been talking about here is that that makes this generation different than the boomers, while they surprisingly share a lot of similar traits, is that global communication capability. Uh, when I talk to, to corporations and, and other institutions about change in the future, I talk about three key technologies that are going to do that, artificial intelligence, uh, augmented reality, and 5G. Um, it strikes me that 5G is going to be a really critical technology for this generation. What role do you see 5G playing in society when society is run by the millennial generation? I think you've hit on a really important point because if we look at what is uh, occurring from an investment perspective around the world, there is 1.5 trillion US being invested by mobile operators in fifth generation mobiles around the world over the coming three years. Now, if you just think about that, that is an extraordinary level of capacity, new capacity uh, that's, uh, that's going in around the world. Now, you know, fifth generation mobile isn't just about uh, faster mobile or faster speeds. Mm -hmm. It's in fact the first generation of mobile technology that allows us to hyper-connect all sorts of devices, systems, networks, and people at rates like never before. Uh, and so the Internet of Things uh, will enable our cities to become smarter. Our vehicles are going to become autonomous. There's all sorts of wonderful new experiences that we can anticipate this network will bring. Now, when we look at artificial intelligence, um, we've got to remind ourselves that it is data that is the ingredient uh, upon which da uh, artificial intelligence then applies itself to. And so in a hyper-connected world, we are going through an exponential increase in the volume uh, and the velocity of data that's going to be generated. And this is where those kinds of uh, technologies, such as artificial intelligence, will, will play a very significant role in synthesizing this sort of mass of data uh, that not only exists today, but uh, will increase exponentially through the course of time. So, uh, so artificial intelligence will play a very important role across a whole variety of consumer applications, as well as industrial applications as, uh, as well. But we shouldn't lose sight also, I think, of uh, the emergence of quantum computing. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think 
although the time frames for the you know commercialization of uh, of of quantum computing is sort of a little bit further out than fifth generation mobile or artificial intelligence. Nonetheless, it will have a profound impact on the capacity that we'll have to solve problems that we simply can't solve today using today's technology. So I think the important point that the World Economic Forum is saying is that it's not necessarily just one of these technologies in isolation. Right. It is in fact the 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 amalgam of all of these technologies operating uh, collectively that will give us that speed, scale, and impact. You know, when you have, you know, uh, the Internet of Things. Uh, on fifth-generation mobile networks with artificial intelligence applied over the top of that, you know, the, the collective use of those three te- technologies is not just synergistic, but it's incredibly powerful. So we have a sense of how that always-on hyper-connected 5G will change commerce and industry. But what of society? How does it change us? Well, I think, you know, we, we, we have cause to pause and ask, I think, the really important questions around areas and topics such as privacy. In this hyper-connected world, what levels of control should or, uh, or do we want to have with our own personal information? The third industrial revolution and the rush in the third industrial revolution happened that quickly um, that you know, perhaps we didn't pause and ask some of those critical questions. But there are certainly things that we should be talking uh, about today. The ethical use of artificial intelligence, as another example. You know, how do we feel if we subscribe to the, the notion of a singularity? How do we feel about competing with machines for thought? So I think it is really, really important that, you know, we have these debates and make sure that we're not then retrospectively trying to come up with policy around a horse that's already bolted. Well, that analogy, I think, is quite apt. Or, or another one being the privacy Pandora's box already be open. Millennials aren't old enough to have the power to prevent the abuses that they're railing against right now. Or is that just a slacker Gen X view? Well, again, uh, you know, if we look at the composition of senators and ministers in political power, again, what we see is a significant underrepresentation of what's become the largest demographic group on the planet in our political systems. And so this is fascinating because I'll give you an example here. If we look to what's happening in New Zealand we can now start seeing uh, this demographic step forward and bring their ideas, views, and challenge older demographics for seats in parliament uh, or in, you know, senates, wherever they may be contesting. So New Zealand's a great example because the prime minister there, Jacinda Ardern, is just outside, from an age perspective, just outside uh, the range, the age range uh, of what we would classify as a, as a millennial. But you can see the policies and the influence that New Zealand is putting in place just recently on climate control, for example. So we can see that what can happen, if we use New Zealand as, as an example, 
of when this demographic starts having policy influence uh, within a country. So you referenced New Zealand. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Australasia, particularly, you know, because if one city can be seen as ahead of another in, say, the world of fashion, you know, oh, darling, I saw that on the runways of Milan. You're not going to see that in Toronto for another four years. You know, you hear that. What about tech? Being Asia-based puts you at the center of new technology and the change it brings. How far into the future do you think you live compared to most in North America or Europe? Thank you for uh, acknowledging that, Michael. This is very important because Asia is becoming the centre of economic, social and cultural change, described as the Asian century. That is the, the era that we, we are now going, uh, going into. And at a demographic level, 60% of Asia's population is made up of millennials. And so if we just look at China as an example, you know, a population of approximately 1.2 billion, 400 million of them are millennials. And we can see as countries come through uh, from a emerging status, uh, and we can see what happens with the rise of the middle class, how they ex exercise their economic preferences. And so if we look at, you know, even countries like Indonesia, population of uh, approximately 250 million people, 130 million of them are less than 30 years of age. And then we've got the Philippines, uh, and we've got uh, Thailand, we've got Vietnam, we've got all of these emerging countries that have access to entrepreneurship, have access to capital. And so the, where a lot of us futurists and futurologists are going in our thinking is that the next significant wave of disruption we're going to see emerge from the emerging markets, uh, both in you know, Southeast Asia as well as uh, in South America as well. Now, why is this the case? It's the case because in those countries, governments uh, are embracing um, leapfrog and step change because of the social and economic benefits that, that come with it. In many of those countries, for example, they have significant proportions of their populations that don't have access to healthcare, uh, that don't have access to education, that don't have access to the things that we take for granted, banking, for example. You know, if we look at Sri Lanka, classic country, approximately 20 million people, uh, only 5 million of the, them have access to a bank account, yet 98% of the population has access to a mobile phone. Um, and so mobile money um, as a, is a great example of where, you know, nations have embraced uh, that technology to create a financial system outside of what's used in developed markets. We see this right across, uh, you know, Africa, for example. Um, we can see this right across Southeast Asia as well. Uh, and so we've got a lot to look forward to, I, I would say, in the emerging markets, the epicentre though beyond any question of doubt now, uh, will be Asia. Mobile payments often gets used as the prime example of one of the key differences between what's happened technologically in the West versus what's going on in the East. It was William Gibson who had that line that the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. 
there's a there's an homogenization in the West. You know, you talk about Europe, you talk about North America. We're all basically doing the same kind of stuff, but it's much more fractured in those technological growth rates in Australasia, particularly as you point out, China. They have systems like the social credit system that's in place right now that we wouldn't dream of bringing in to North America, or, or at least unless you watch an episode of Black Mirror, where you know that that sort of thing is coming. Are, are there any particular lessons that jump out to you about any given technology that's been integrated in the East that is coming to the West or is an evident, is in evidence of being adopted in greater volumes by the West that we don't know anything about yet? What do we need to learn? What do we need to export to the West? Yeah, I'll give you a great example here. And it's the use of QR technology, uh, which is uh, uh, which is a quick response technology. In other words, barcodes and QR codes that uh, you know we use for a whole variety of uh, of different experiences. You use it. We don't use it barely at all. Yeah. So so if we look at payments, for example. One of the things that you notice when you go uh, into China, for example, is unless you've got WeChat uh, and uh, a QR technology, you know, they're not going to take your credit card. (laughs) And, you know, in hotels and the major sort of top end of town, uh, they will. But if you're in a taxi, it's either cash or WeChat. And so the point here is that uh, in the absence of um, uniformity and standardization of a lot of technologies, they've been able to use a technology which has become interoperable and agnostic to whatever device choice you've got or whatever operating system you've got. So a great example, Michael, is QR technology, which isn't a new technology. It's been with us uh, for quite some time. Uh, But if we look at how that technology was adopted throughout Asia to resolve the interoperability issues, whether that's across uh, handsets, whether it's across operating systems, or whether it's across uh, different applications. Um, And that has given rise to the explosion of mobile payments throughout Asia. And um, we can see this by the fact that 95% of the mobile payment uh, activity in China is actually provided not by the major banks, uh, but by Tencent, WeChat, and those kinds of organisations. The Alibaba Group, uh, all of these new entrants were the ones that gave rise to that uh, that that technology. And mobile payments now in the in the um, in China is, you know, uh, about ten times greater than what it is in the United States. So what actually what we can see here is when they solve these sort of interoperability issues or standards issues through the clever use of technologies like that, uh, we can see the exponential effect that it has. We can also see the um, impact that mobile technology has, has had in providing financial inclusion to the tens of millions of unbanked people throughout Southeast Asia, whether they're in the Philippines, whether they're in Indonesia, whether they're in Thailand, Vietnam, 
mobile technology has provided them with a way of exchanging value with goods and services, which is outside the traditional banking and financial system that we have in developed countries. And we see this, of course, across Africa as well. And so this is what's quite exciting about the emerging markets is that they, uh, the, you know, the, in, in areas where there are significant, you know, under uh, uh, un, unbanked people uh, that don't have access to healthcare systems, education, all of these sort of social areas, uh, we can see technology playing a fascinating role. In America, if you have an idea, it's often said, you know, they want in on the ground floor. If you have an idea in Canada, nobody wants to know you unless you've had success in America first. You could say the same of Great Britain to a degree as well. Innovation can be very culturally driven. What does the culture of technological innovation look like to you from where you sit? If we look at the question of how innovation is being applied by organizations that have been around a long time versus the, you know, the startups and the newer organizations. You know, traditional organizations are really, really struggling uh, with innovation. And this is because they've developed uh, and grown to become very linear based in their thinking. You know, next year, if we want to grow 5%, we need this much capital, we need this much uh, labor, we need this much XXX. Whereas what we're now seeing is organizations that are growing and exploding in growth exponentially. They have this variability about them that a traditional model doesn't have. And we call this the exponential effect. And the Singularity University in the United States has been studying them for about 12 years. I've been studying them for about six. We now know the DNA of what makes up these organizations. Uh, And so when we think about disruption and transformation, we've got to look at what question are they really trying to address? Because a lot of the old organizations that I advise, uh, uh, when I look at their innovation programs or the symbols of what they point to as being innovative, uh, I often think, you know, it's just a new pair of shoes for the horse. They're trying to improve their current model rather than thinking about you know, how do we reimagine what transport could be? Um, and so, uh, so I think that's the big difference between what you see in a lot of the startup and emerging uh, entrepreneurship innovation community versus, you know, the uh, incremental approach to innovation occurring in traditional organisations. Jack Ma, the founder of the uh, and chairman of the Alibaba Group, summarised this perfectly where he said for Walmart to uh, grow and acquire 1 million new customers, they require 15,000 square feet of real estate and then labour to run and operate it. Me, just one server. And I think that's the big difference between, you know, what we're now seeing when it comes to disruption. We're seeing 
organisations that are now designing their the way they create value in completely new and different ways. And it's the, the best way to think about that is that it's the difference between the product economy versus the experience economy. And the future is the experience economy, not the product economy. Well, I'd say we're living it right now. So if we look at some examples, you know, what do we mean by this? Uh, what's the difference between the two? The difference between the two is that we are disaggregating uh, the notion that demand and supply are a direct relationship between access to scarcity uh, of, uh, of resources. Um, and so if we look at... Uh, you know, the largest media company in the world doesn't own media. The largest transport company in the world doesn't own transport. The largest property provider in the world uh, doesn't own property. And of course, I'm referring to uh, Facebook, Airbnb and Uber. Uh, and so the point here is, and that's what I mean about the experience economy, creates economic value through the experience, leveraging abundance uh, in um, uh, in the economy, and and so we are living the experience economy already. Another example I, I use is that when it comes to our expectations, we have now evolved to expect that our digital life lives with us in real time. That's why we get notifications on things that we choose to be notified about that we have immediate access to developments, whether it's news, whether it's whatever, around the world instantaneously. That's what we've become accustomed to. And so in the experience economy, it is about how you create services uh, that fit into the way with which we live our digital lives. And that's what we're struggling to see major product-based organisations really sort of transition to. Uh, they're stuck in the product economy where, you know, they only have four release cycles each year, for example. Whereas, you know, if you look at Facebook, each day is a new day and yesterday's customer experience is not satisfactory today because the world has changed. How have we changed to fit in with the customer's world today? Wonderful, wonderful way of viewing um, people's expectations and the experience economy. Let's come full circle to the conversation about youthquake. Is there a difference between an Eastern millennial and a Western millennial? I'll answer that by saying 2 billion people on the planet simply cannot be homogenous. Yet we refer to them as though they are. They eat smashed avocado on toast. Uh, they can't buy homes. Uh, all of this stereotyping of a uh, of uh, this demographic, and and I would say that this demographic has attracted uh, more stereotyping, perhaps than any other generation before. Um, and you know, and so I would say that you know we should begin our thinking by just accepting that they simply can't be homogenous. Each generation, to quote George Orwell, each generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it and wiser than the one that comes after it. And so, yes, there are absolutely differences uh, between a Eastern millennial and a Western 
millennial, and that shouldn't be of surprise to us. Um, and so, uh, so I think you know we we we, we need to uh, not think of them as being homogenous, uh, but you know, absolutely be attentive to all of the cultural expectations uh, that, you know, each generation has across different countries. You know, we, we've now evolved in our digital world to uh, what's referred to as personalization. And I think this, Michael, is what organisations are really struggling with. Uh, and I'll give you an example you know, Amazon, for example, I'm an avid reader, of course. I love, love my books. You know, I'll go onto Amazon to search for a book um, and then all of a sudden I've bought, you know, four or five. <laughs> and I love it. Um, but that's personalization. Uh, Amazon has learnt uh, the kinds of literature that I'm fascinated by. Um, and uh, as a result, I, I end up buying more and I, get, and I keep getting surprised. And so the point here is about personalization, I think, rather than thinking about things from a uh, homogeneity perspective. Um, and so we're living in a world of personalization and the experience that I expect of those organizations that serve me in my digital life is that they know who I am, uh, and they add value to the things that uh, are important to me in my life. Okay, Boomer, I've only got one beef with you there. I don't know if millennials have had more derision as a generation than us slacker do-nothing Gen Xers. The internet has just amplified it. Well, I think if you, so if we, well, well, I would say it's, it's, it's the environment that they've grown up in is different to other generations. Um, and it's a bit like sort of saying, you know, Michael, you've come of age, it's time for you to learn how to drive, but you're going to have to learn how to ride a horse first. Uh, well, why? <laughs> you don't need to. Um, and I think that's the, you know, that's often something that uh, generations do when they compare them to themselves. Uh, they're comparing themselves to the environment, the way with which they grew up, uh, which is uh, simply not the world as it is today. And I think that's why it's important to, uh, when we think about the fourth industrial revolution, which will unfold over the coming 20 years, we've got to also have a look at that demographically, uh, not at the expense and the exclusion of other demographics, but again, we've got to think about, well, who are the ones that are going to be buying this stuff? Who are the people that are going to be running the companies that make this stuff? Who are going to be the policy makers? Who are going to be the investors that invest in organisations that make this stuff? Well, it's the millennial generation. Uh, and so there's never become a more important time for us to be including them uh, in our thinking rather than uh, disproportionately underrepresenting them, which is what we have today. See the future. Listen to what's next. Read about world-changing ideas. All by visiting futurhythmic.com. The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth is a Nokia original series.